0: What up, 1045? All right, you're the brunch crew, so you're like all. The morning crew was like super unresponsive because I feel like they had just woken up. I'm not sure if you just woke up or if you just like brunched and then came here. We're just gonna make brunch jokes all the time uh, about you guys. No, I'm just kidding. We'll call it the summit brunch. And then, uh, anyways, so this is not a good start to the first gathering we've ever had. Um, this is the first time I've done this, so I'm trying to get my head wrapped back around what we're doing. But I am pumped. This is really exciting. I hope you're really excited to be part of really the history of what it is that we're doing here as well. And it's fall. I'm really pumped about that. I know that like it's not uh, calendar-wise fall exactly, but the Bible says that once football season starts, it's fall. And so uh, it is fall. I love fall. Like Fall is my favorite season here in Denver. I think it's better than any other season, and they're all amazing here in Denver. And I'm really excited. You know, We're starting this new gathering um, yeah, I I mean, like, I know there's, like, more space than we normally have, and you should actually be really excited about that, really pumped about that. Like, I feel like growing the church is a lot like when you're buying clothes for your kid. Like, I don't know, I think about when I buy my daughter Crocs, which I know, like, don't judge me for that, okay? But she's, she's, like, super cute in Crocs as a two-year-old. And, um, you know, you want to buy them just big enough that it communicates the growth is an ending. It's actually just beginning. Um, you know, when you're two, you don't kind of want to say that well, that's the end. It's the same way for us as a church. I know we're, you know, going to turn six in a few months, but for us, we feel like this isn't the end of our story. It's actually just the beginning and God's just getting started. And really the the, the open space, the open seats, they're meant to communicate to you really the open opportunity that is available to us. Like first in your own life, like we desire for all of you in this room, every single man and woman in this room, we desire for you to live as you were supposed to live, so you might flourish, for you to believe as you're meant to believe, so you might worship God and see him for who he is meant to be. But we don't just desire that for you, we desire that for the people that God has entrusted to you as well, your friends, your neighbors, your co-workers, your family members as well. We deeply, deeply desire that for you. And, and really, here's kind of like the heart of what it is that we're after. This is kind of a perfect week for you to be here as we kick Mark back off. Because really what we're seeing In this passage, is what we desire for your lives and the people who are in your life as well. What we're going to see in this passage is some people, or is this woman who supremely treasures Jesus above everything else. She supremely treasures Jesus above everything else, and that's what we want for your life as well. Now, probably that just sounds like a churchy saying that makes very little sense right off the bat, where you're like, okay, I feel fed. I'm ready to go home now. Like, no, like it's, we're going to spend not just kind of the rest of our time this morning, but also like the rest of the series unpacking, like, what does that mean? What does that look like? What exactly is it that that entails? But kind of to get you ready to like really have this impact your life, I really just want to ask you two questions on the front end, and then we'll just ju- jump right into the, uh, the text. So the first question, I just want to ask you to get ready to kind of, work through this issue is really what is it that I supremely treasure in my life? What is it that I supremely treasure in my life? Now, none of you got up this morning, unless I don't think that any of you, unless you're super spiritual. Probably none of you got up this morning and woke up and said to yourself, "What do I supremely treasure in life?" Right? You just like got up. You were like looking at your iPhone and just sort of trying to gain some element of consciousness when you woke up this morning. But just because you might not have asked that question doesn't mean that you haven't decided to answer it as well. In all of our lives, there's something that tells us it's worth getting up in the morning. It's worth getting getting out of the house. It's worth all the sacrifice. It's worth all the struggle. It is worth this. There's something that is so valuable. If I have this thing, even though I don't have anything else, life is still worth living. I and mean, there's easy examples of this as you maybe try to diagnose this in your own life. I mean, relationships are always the easiest place where probably all of us in this room have a story where we've done ridiculous things. I mean, just ridiculous things. We've left family, we've left cities, we've left jobs, we've left friends, we've left churches for the sake of a relationship, where we told ourselves, like, if I can have you, right, like, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter, as long as you love me, we could be starving, we could be homeless, we could be broke, as long as you love me, life is still worth living, which, by the way, that's a Justin Bieber lyric, so um, if you've ever done that, you've been following the internal voice of Justin Bieber in your heart, okay, I just wanted to, like, help you self-diagnose that just a little bit, okay, so relationships are an easy place, jobs are an easy place to see this as well, where a lot of you work in industries, where, you know, it's just sort of, like, it's not even just sort of Uh, silently assumed. It's actually communicated that, yeah, making it in this industry will cost you your uh, health. It'll cost you your emotional well-being. It will cost you a family. It'll cost you uh, healthy relationships. It'll cost you everything. But it's so worth kind of hitting the pinnacle of this particular career. It's worth it because this thing is so valuable. And so you just need to ask yourself that. There's something in your life that's so valuable that's worth uh, that, or that, that you supremely treasure now the second question is not just what is that, but the second question you need to ask yourself is whether or not that thing can sustain the weight of that expectation, okay can that thing that I supremely treasure can it sustain the weight of that expectation, and you just need to ask yourself, okay, can a relationship can a relationship with a finite you know I know they seem great. You know, initially, but we've done enough life to be like, okay, everybody's deeply flawed in some particular way. Can eternal, infinite expectations be satisfied by a relationship with a broken, finite human being? Or for a career, for example, like, even if you do make it, and even if you do make more money than you could ever imagine, and even if you do have more influence than you could ever dream, and you become famous on social media and all that stuff, like, is it a wise decision for you to build your life around something that will be taken away from you? At some point in your life. I'm not just saying like it can be, because I mean a lot of us, even in this room, have lost jobs through no fault of our own. But I mean the reality is, is all of us are gonna age out of our career at some point. All of us are gonna be the 60, 70, 80-year-old who gets replaced by some 20-year-old punk who'll do the same job for a quarter of the pay. Like I know that's you in the room. Most of you are the ones who are replacing people right now, but you'll be replaced, okay? So should you build infinite, eternal expectations upon something that that's finite and fragile like a career that will be taken away from you at some point in your life. And you just need to start wrestling through that question because what you're seeing, what emerges in your life is you have more than priorities. You have a treasure that you will give anything to have. And what is that? And is it worth you giving your whole life to? And the reason I'm trying to raise all these questions is because this story is, it's like a case study. It's like a window into a woman who treasures Jesus above everything else. And you're gonna see the beauty and the goodness that follows by like really this woman believing and living in the way that we were created and intended to believe and to live. So I'm really excited to walk through uh, this passage. If If you're new here, we've actually been in Mark for almost two years. We'll finish Mark uh, this coming Thanksgiving. So, we've been doing Mark chapters 1 through 13 up to this point. We're now back in this. And so, what I first want to do before we jump into the text in a whole lot of detail is give you some of the context of what's been going on. We'll call it the context and the coming tragedy because that really captures what it is that's going on here in the scene and will catch, we'll catch you up since we've been out of this for a few months. Now, if you want to kind of understand the context, if you want to understand really this passage as a whole, um, I want you to imagine a sandwich, okay? That's the best way for you to understand what's going on here. It's like a sandwich. But it's like one of those sandwiches, like imagine going to your favorite sandwich place in the city and they have like your favorite sandwich, like the meat or whatever you put on a sandwich is like the most beautiful thing you could ever taste in your entire life. But it's bookended by the nastiest bread. Has it ever happened to you go to a sandwich place and they're like, we have what you want, but we only have like stale pumpernickel left. And you're like, what do I do in this particular scenario? That's basically this passage. You've got a beautiful center and you've got some stale, nasty Bread on the outside. Now we're going to deal with the bread first for you to see kind of like what is going on here, the context and the coming tragedy. Now, what we see leading up to this point in the first 13 chapters of Mark is Jesus has done two things. He has claimed to be the Messiah. And he has proved that he is the Messiah, okay? So he's claimed to be the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who's gonna come and redeem and restore the world back to the way that it's meant to be. We long for somebody like this. I mean, we're on the political cycle again, where even when we have the most incompetent of candidates, you see people placing messianic expectations onto people and saying, finally, here is the one who will put the world back in the way that it's meant to be, and we won't experience any more brokenness anymore. And then we just get disappointed. It happens again and again and again. Why? Why is there that cycle of disappointment? Because Jesus alone, can carry the weight of messianic expectations. And Jesus in Mark chapter 1, he says, not only am I the Messiah, but I'm going to show you I'm the Messiah as well. And so he's victorious over all the great enemies of humanity. He's victorious over disease to show he's he's victorious over illness. He's victorious over spiritual uh, and demonic oppression and possession to show that he's victorious over spiritual evil. He even raises people from the dead to show that he has the answer for the one thing that we as humanity, in spite of all our technological advancements, have no answers for anymore. And again and again and again, what's happening, saying, I am the Messiah. I'm showing you that I'm the Messiah. And what's happening is people are seeing this from the outside and two things are happening. It's climaxing with incredible opposition and incredible followership as well. His influence and his opposition are now getting to the point in Mark 14 where they're about to hit a climax. And really like the way things are Uh, will be radically changed in just a matter of a few days. That brings us then to Mark chapter 14, verse 1 and 2, which shows us some of the opposition that he is facing at this time. It says now, it says verse 1, it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about this next week, but what you need to understand is in the history of the people of God, there was this thing called the Exodus. We're actually going to spend next year studying the book of Exodus. I'm really excited about this. But the Exodus was a story where the people of God were liberated from slavery under Egyptian tyranny, and rule. And what the people of God would do is annually celebrate and remember God's delivering of them. And who you do is they would celebrate through this like giant feast, this giant festival called the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It actually had to be celebrated in Jerusalem. If we can bring up our world map so you can kind of know where this is going down. This is all happening in Jerusalem. That was happening kind of in this area right over here. And what would happen is religious tourists from all over the world would come to Jerusalem during this time of year to the point that the city of Jerusalem would actually swell to four times its normal population. So what happens then is, look at this. In verse 1, not only is this going down, but the chief priests and the scribes, they're kind of the religious authorities and leaders of the day, were seeking how to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. There's that opposition piece. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So they want to kill him, but they're being really nice about it and waiting until a couple days after the feast to kill Jesus, because it's a bummer to kill somebody on Christmas day, and so you try to do it the day after Christmas instead, because I don't know why. But it's, you know, for some reason, like, oh, that's a more appropriate time to kill somebody, as well as emotions in Jerusalem will have kind of been toned down some as people have uh, left the city as well. Now, look at this. That's kind of at the top of this passage. At the bottom of this, jump down to verses 10 through 11, is we see that these religious leaders actually get an opportunity, and they're like, okay, forget it. We're not going to be patient. We're just going to kind of jump through the window now that it's been open for us. It says, then Judas Iscariot, this is verse 10, who was one of the 12, that is one of the 12 people that uh, Jesus had invested his life in, went to the chief priests in order to betray Jesus to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And so here's what you see. Jesus' influence is at an all-time high, but the opposition is as well. And pretty soon, in just a few short days after all of this is initially going down, Jesus is going to go to a cross and we're going to see a climax of both his work as well as the opposition towards his work as well. Caught up? Makes sense? All right. Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to, now that we've looked with the nasty pumpernickel. We're going to jump in. I'm sorry if you like pumpernickel. I haven't met anybody who's like that, but I'm sure there's a few of you. So in between that, in between that, we get really offended by a lot here in Denver. So I just want to make sure that everybody's okay. Okay, now let's look at the beautiful central truth of this passage. We're going to meet a woman is an unbelievable example for all of us to follow. A woman, in spite of kind of nobody else getting it, serves as a shining example of faith that we are meant to emulate. Now, uh, the way that we're going to walk through this, I'm going to walk through this because this scene can kind of almost be better described in three scenes, three mini scenes, so you can kind of understand the nuance of what unfolds here. It's a beautiful scene. It's really, really weird though. And so let me just kind of walk through this. The first thing we see in this scene is that a dinner party gets weird, okay? That's the most theological way I could describe it. A dinner party gets really, really weird. Now look at this, verse three, it says, and while Jesus was at Bethany, now Bethany was sort of like a suburb of Jerusalem that was a mile and a half east of the city. So Aurora, basically. Uh, While he was at Bethany, In the house of Simon the leper. We don't know who Simon the leper is. Uh, Theologians believe he was probably uh, a guy that Jesus healed, uh, that we don't see, like, isn't chronicled in Mark, and he's now showing his appreciation by practicing hospitality towards Jesus and the disciples. As he was reclining at table, um, in the first century, when meals were eaten, a lot of times people would lay down as they ate them, which is amazing. Why did we stop doing that? Like, that's, like, gosh, we have, like, devolved. Um, as he was reclining at the table, a woman... Now, here's the first weird thing that we see in this scene, because you have to understand this is a highly patriarchal culture, and one of the huge no-nos in a highly patriarchal culture is a woman would never come to a place where a bunch of men are eating. Almost try to put yourself in this particular scenario this, I don't think this really exists in Denver, but in the South, there's a lot of like all men's clubs. There'll be like country clubs or fraternities or things like that. I want you to imagine you're in that. I don't know why you would be, but you're in that. And all of a sudden, a bunch of dudes are hanging out and a woman walks in. So you'd be a little bit like, huh, like what exactly is it that's going on here? Not just a woman, but a woman, she came with an alabaster flask uh, of ointment of pure nard, very costly. Now it's interesting, that little detail where Mark tells us, that she's carrying something of nard. Nard was a plant that was found exclusively in India, and this thing is super, super expensive. In fact, in verse 5, Mark actually says the value of what she's carrying is somewhere around 300 denarii, which if you translate that into today's economy, would be somewhere around fifty to $60,000. Okay, so a woman walks in, and she's carrying, like, her entire net worth. She, I mean, we don't really carry things around this anymore, but just think if you're sharing this meal and you're watching this and she walks in with this thing that is insanely expensive. Not only that, but here's how it gets even weirder. She came in with this thing and she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus's head. Can you imagine what you would feel in that moment? Like again, you're downtown with a bunch of dudes eating a meal. A woman walks in, with really, 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 really expensive perfume. And then she just empties that thing on your buddy's head on the other side of the booth. You'd be like, what the heck is going on here, right? Like, what in the world? This is a really bizarre, weird scene. Now, what's interesting is the disciples respond in the way you would think them, they would respond. They're kind of like, this is weird, and we're gonna rebuke you for being so weird. So what happens next is the dinner party gets weird, and the disciples rebuke this woman. Look at this in verse four. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Which this is a fairly famous story from the Bible. Uh, Probably a lot of you have heard this taught before. And my observation is when most people teach this, like whoever's preaching it the way I am right now, usually is like, you stupid disciples. I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you're so ignorant to condemn this woman. But can we just be honest? I mean, the first time I read this, I'm like, I think the disciples have a really good point. Right? Like, this is exactly what I'm like. It seems like an awfully big waste. Um, especially when they add in there, not only does it seem like an awfully big waste, but you could have sold this and you could have given, the mo- given to the money of the poor, which they spent time with Jesus. And they know Jesus loves the poor. He identifies with the poor. He cares deeply for the poor. So you imagine Peter, James, and John being like really loudly so that you know Jesus can overhear. Hey, you could have given that to the poor. And they're thinking to themselves like, man, Jesus is gonna be like, way to go guys. You finally got it. You're finally catching up to speed. And Peter, James, and John are like fist bumping below the table, like here it comes. Finally, Jesus is gonna praise us for what we've done but you can never nail down Jesus, right? As soon as you think you've like figured him out, like like this guy, I mean, you know what he does? He's not like, way to go, way to condemn this woman. Jesus actually rebukes them for rebuking her, which I imagine for them, they're just like, you gotta be kidding me, right? Like we cannot like get caught up in like what this guy wants us to do. And look at this, Jesus rebukes the rebuke. Jesus says in verse six, and Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. Isn't that interesting? He's not like, you know, Uh, this was just an ignorant thing for this woman to do and let's not give her that hard of a thing. I mean, he like is going a step further. He's saying it was beautiful what she did. Why would that be beautiful? He goes on and tells us. For you, or because, you will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body for burial beforehand for burial. We're going to come back to verses 7 through 8. Look at verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Which, I'm just, this is happening. Do you see that? Like actually what Jesus said in verse 9 is actually happening right now in this moment. Because the story originally unfolded in the Middle East 2,000 years ago, and now we on the other side of the world are actually learning and getting to believe what it is that we can learn from this woman. Isn't that cool? Yes, it is. Okay. (laughs) Everybody okay? We're good? Yes. Okay. Now, let's look again at verses seven through eight. This is like the the heart of what it is that Jesus is after. We'll we'll do verse seven. They're both very nuanced statements that have a ton of uh, depth to them. We'll start with verse seven because this is probably the weirdest thing that Jesus said. He says, you always have the poor with you, And whenever you want, you can do good to them, but you will not always have me. Now, let's talk about what is Jesus not saying and what Jesus is saying, okay? What he's not saying is, and sometimes this happens where this gets twisted a little bit for Jesus to say, the plight of the poor is insignificant, or the church should not concern themselves with the plight of the poor. Sometimes this gets a little bit twisted to be like, oh, Jesus is saying, give yourself the spiritual things, don't worry about poverty and things like that, Now, the problem with that is it doesn't align with anything that Jesus has been saying for the first 13 chapters of this book, where he has shown a unique love for, a unique identification with, a unique concern for the poor. So why in this moment would it seem like he's almost like dismissing them? Well, here's what Jesus is saying, and this is nuance, okay? So I actually wrote this out, and then uh, I'm going to read it, and I'll try to unpack it so it makes sense. What Jesus is saying is this woman's actions are beautiful because she supremely treasures him above all else, including, and these are very good things, uh, just not ultimate things, her own financial security and even a cause like caring for the poor that is unbelievably close to the heart of God. It's like he's taking something that for his entire life he's been teaching is like, this is really significant, this is really significant, this is really good, this is really good. And then he's like, oh, and by the way, I'm way more important than that. It should sort of like startle you and throw you off a little bit. Like, Can he say that? Right? It's like he's boasting in his own significance. He's boasting in his own preeminence. He's proving himself as the most important person, the most significant cause, in the universe that we should all give ourselves to. Now let's think critically here for a second about what it is that Jesus is saying, because I think if we're reading this critically and thinking critically, we are a little bit put off by somebody bragging to this degree, right? There's like some element, I don't know, we exist in a culture where like LeBron James, he's an NBA player, could score like 75 points in a game, And in the press conference afterwards, if LeBron James isn't like, you know, I'm not really that good. I really just want to credit my teammates for everything that they've done. You know, if he's like, I'm the best basketball player in the world, like, we're kind of like, who the heck do you think you are? And that's kind of like what Jesus is doing in this moment. Like, I'm the most important person in the universe. I'm not just the best basketball player. I'm like the most important person in the entire universe. We naturally get a little bit put off when people sort of boast in their own giftedness and supremacy and significance to this particular degree. As long as, here's the thing, as long as it doesn't really matter. Like, we're put off when people boast of their own significance and preeminence of this degree as long as it's a circumstance that doesn't really matter that much. Now, let me just kind of give you a scenario maybe to think this through. Um, I take my daughter on dates fairly often, and one of my favorite places to take my daughter is to the Denver Children's Museum. Any Denver Children's Museum lovers in here? Yeah. Guys, what is going on? Okay, like, (laughs) yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. I love going to the Denver Children's Museum, because you get to be a kid, even though you're an adult, and you get to do all these socially acceptable things that wouldn't be acceptable if you're in any other place, but you're with your daughter, and so you can do whatever the heck it is that you want. And my favorite place, part of the Denver Children's Museum, is this place you get to build paper airplanes. Now, I love this thing. I go to this part of the museum and I'm super pumped about this because it's not just you build paper airplanes, but it's like a competition against the other children as well, which I'm like, I like my heart, my love language is competition. So I'm like loving this thing. I'm getting to go do this. And, uh, you know, I kind of come up with my daughter and I see all these other kids trying. And I'm like, man, we could build way better paper airplanes and all that stuff. And so I'm like ready to design the most beautiful, most, uh, you know, aeronomically correct paper airplane you've ever seen in your entire life. But here's kind of the catch with all this is my daughter is like the strongest, most independent woman I know at age two and a half already. So I'm not sure how that's going to go. I'm actually really excited for her strength, but she'll come up and we'll get there. And I'm like super pumped to help her win the paper airplane competition. And she pushes me away and she goes, no, I'm going to do it. That's what she says. I'm going to do it. That's the way she says do it, but it's, like, way cuter, so we're encouraging it for as long as possible. So I'm going to do it. And, uh, you know, I just kind of step back, and, uh, you know, parents of toddlers, you know how this goes, you just sort of step back, and you let this thing go. And she, like, takes some paper, and she's sort of, like, folds it in half, sort of, and puts like a single piece of scotch tape and does some orange marker on it. And then we take it over and we try to fly that thing. And it flies approximately 0.0 feet. It just like, pew, like goes straight down. And uh, I'm a little bit bummed, but you know, I'm giving him an opportunity. And all of you probably hear that. And I would assume you think in the back of your head right now, you know, like he's a good dad for doing that. Like if I did the opposite of that in that particular scenario, if I was just like, no, I'm going to do it. I'm gonna do it to Hannah. Get out of the way. I like push her out of the way. And I started folding this. And then I like fly that thing further than all those kids. And like, what's up, kids? How about that? I'm the best around. You would be like, I'm not going to the summit anymore because that guy's crazy, right? So, so you would feel that about me. Now, the reason that you feel that about me is because that scenario doesn't matter, right? You flip the scenario and you say, okay, we're not flying paper airplanes at the Denver Children's Museum. We're actually flying a real plane 10,000 feet above the air. And the flight attendant gets on the intercom and says, the pilot just had a heart attack. Can anybody fly a plane? And if I have my pilot's license, I don't, but I do for the sake of this illustration. I have my pilot's license, and I'm just getting ready to get up and move forward to kind of help and save everybody's life. And my daughter yells out in her beautiful independence, no, I'm going to do it!" Like, what do you want in that moment, right? You want to be like, oh, you know, well, you know, everybody deserves a chance, and I know I'm kind of good at this, but no, you go ahead and do it. No, what do you want in that moment where life really matters the most. And you want me to get up and scream, look at me, I get out of the way, I can do this, I'm the best at this, I'm the only one qualified for this. Everybody else, get out of the way. And you wouldn't be like, oh, who's that entitled braggadocious guy think that he is? No, you wouldn't think that's egotistical, you would actually think that's love. And Jesus, in this moment where he is talking to he's dealing with a room full of men and women who are trying to answer that original question of who or what will I treasure the most? And everybody's answering that question and in a diversity of ways, we'll see that in the coming weeks and even this morning. Jesus is saying, look at me, look at me. I'm the one, like <laughs> me alone, I'm the one. The infinite eternal God is the one alone who can satisfy and sustain the way of your infinite eternal expectations. And even the most beautiful relationship won't sustain that. Even the most incredible job won't sustain that. Even the most incredible cause won't sustain that. Not because they're bad, but because they're not infinitely in na- infinite in nature. And the greatest danger to our life is not falling prey to obvious bad things that'll wreck your life. The greatest threat to our lives is taking good things and elevating them to ultimate things and believing they can do what only God can do. And Jesus is saying in this moment, don't live that way. Don't think that way, because that is not your joy in there. Look at me. Only your infinite eternal expectations, only what you deeply and primarily treasure will be sustained and carried and satisfied in me. And it's not egomania, it's love. And we want that when life matters the most. Your life matters. Do you know that? You are the most significant thing made by a God who made everything. Your life matters. The way you date matters. The way you handle sex matters. The way you handle your job matters. The way you think about your family matters. Man, this is not flying paper airplanes. This is flying at 10,000 feet. And Jesus, out of love, is saying to you, look at me and treasure me and believe me and follow me. Now, here's the thing I love about Jesus he doesn 't just say like "Well, go do it because you 're supposed to do it." He actually starts to give us a glimpse into why he is the supreme treasure who is meant to be loved and valued above all else, and we see this in what it is that he says in verse eight. So we looked at verse seven that 's pretty nuanced. Verse eight is uh, is profoundly nuanced as well, where he calls this woman's be- this action, this, she calls this woman 's actions beautiful because she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now this is a really interesting statement that he's making here because sometimes what's taught or what's assumed by culture is that Jesus was this political revolutionary who sort of gets tricked into dying and he doesn't know what's gonna happen. All of a sudden he's getting crucified. He's like, oh crap, what happened? Like you see here, this is days before his crucifixion. I mean, he knows exactly what's gonna go down. And, and for months leading up to this, he, knows exa- like he has come, he is making the choice to lay down his life. It's a choice. He's not getting tricked. He's not getting overcome. It's a choice that he's making, and he knows it in this moment. And what's so significant about verse 8 is one of the million reasons why you should treasure Jesus supremely above anyone and anything else. And here's the reason why. It's because Jesus in this moment is revealing on one hand, he is the guy who alone sees the full extent of our brokenness, and Jesus is the one alone who remains more resolved than ever to die for us. He alone sees the full extent of our brokenness. He alone remains more resolved than ever to die for us. Now, this is what makes Jesus, and a lot. And this isn't the only reason, but it's one of the million reasons why he treats us better than anyone or anything else. And you think about that. For those of you in this room who are giving yourself supremely to a job, is your job going to love you in this way? And just ask yourself that question. My guess is most of you work in industries that if you reveal the worst of yourself, if you can just reveal a shadow of the worst of yourself, it is the end of you in that place because it's super competitive and it's super cutthroat and people are just looking for weakness. They're looking to take advantage of weakness to punish you for showing who you really are. You think about that in a relationship, right? I mean, the relationship place is the place that most of us go with this and no matter how sort of like dreamy-eyed you are, ultimately, I don't know, probably the majority of us in this room got dumped because somebody that we thought we would spend the rest of our lives with saw something brokenness about us and they didn't like run towards us. They actually ran away as fast as possible. They didn't even tell us they were running away as fast as possible. They actually sent us a text three days later to tell us they had run away as fast as possible. But Jesus Christ, he doesn't treat you like a relationship. He doesn't treat you like a job. He doesn't treat you the way that a cause treats you. He treats you the way that God treats you. He sees the full extent of your brokenness. He knows the depths of your heart. He sees us for who we really are. Even those things we would not let our own spouses into and our closest friends into, even the things we don't even realize are brokenness about us in this moment, he sees. That's a big point of this passage. You're not supposed to read this passage and see all these people, you know, the bookend, right? The nasty sandwich bread. You're not supposed to look at that and be like, yeah, those idiots, It's really not even bread. It's more sandwiched by mirrors than meant to reflect back to you your own depravity and brokenness. You can look at a guy like Judas at the end of this passage who abandons Jesus for a little bit of money, and it's easy for you to be like, oh, yeah, I would never be as stupid as that guy. But really? Really, you've never, ever in your life thought to yourself and lived in such a way that said, I will take money over believing and obeying and following Jesus? Like, never in your life, never, we've never supremely treasured a little bit of money over Jesus Christ. Or, you know who else is at that meal? A guy named Peter. You'll see very shortly, Peter abandons Jesus. You know why he abandons Jesus? Because he has the opportunity to have a little extra safety, a little bit of extra security, a little bit of an extra reputation. We've never lived this way. We've never been silent about the cause for Christ because we're concerned about our own reputation and what will be thought of. We've never prioritized, which in a lot of ways is the ultimate American value that is taught to you from your infancy. What's most important is that you're safe and secure. We've never done what Peter did here in this scene. This is not a story just about broken people 2,000 years ago. It's a story about us and how Jesus sees the worst of us, And in spite of seeing the worst of humanity, you know what Jesus does? He doesn't run away. He actually runs more resolved than ever to go die and take upon the sins of you and me upon himself. And who else, what else is gonna treat you in that way and love you in that way? Who else or what else is worth you building your entire life and your fundamental identity around? And Jesus, in this moment, saying, this is why you should treasure me. Not because you have to, because you get to, and nobody else will treat you this good. And I know that probably it's like, well, what does that exactly look like at work on Monday? I mean, we're going to flesh out in the coming weeks a lot of the practical. on what does this practically mean? And how do I fundamentally live different as a consequence of all that Jesus is talking about? But it's like, all I want to do is like, have us stop and have us in and have us pray, and have us believe, and have us accept and push our hearts to really say, like, do I believe this is true? Because all the practical overflows from you getting this thing right. And you approaching causes in the right way, you approaching dating in the right way, and sex in the right way, and marriage in the right way, and work in the right way, and parenting in the right way, and family in the right way. All of that stuff, doing that the right way, all that really good stuff, is an overflow of you answering this unbelievably significant question correctly. Will I truly treasure Jesus above anything and anyone else? And I think he's proved himself in this passage, in this story, month after month after month, story after story after story, work after work after work, to say, yeah, like, that's the one guy alone in the universe. That's the one cause alone in the universe that is worth me building my entire life around. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who you are. And um, (sighs) thanks for kind of like hitting us right in the soul with your truth. Um, And it's just so easy, particularly in a city that's so amazing, um, to be distracted from the most important things. And I pray... um, that you would recalibrate our hearts and our minds by the power of your Spirit, that he would move us to rightly have first things first and secondary and tertiary things secondary and tertiary and let us live an entire life practically as an overflow in response to the way that you've treated us, which we just get a glimpse of in this scene and we will see in the coming weeks by finishing this book the full extent of our brokenness and the full extent of your love towards us. Thank you for treasuring us in that way, even though we don't deserve it. Let us treasure you supremely because you do deserve it. And uh, yeah, let us respond rightly in this time. We ask all these things in your precious name. Amen.